Hello and welcome to the DC Insider Employer Update Podcast. This podcast updates you with the expertise and current insight of the Washington DC-based attorneys from the Fortney Scott Law Firm. Each episode highlights the most important issues and analysis that employers need to know in order to understand and react to key federal developments affecting their business. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as legal advice on any subject matter. Now let's turn it over to our host, David Fortney. Hi, everyone. This is David Fortney. Welcome to another edition of DC Insider, What Employers Need to Know. I'm joined again today by Nita Beecher and Bert Fishman. Nita, great to have you again. Very excited about this discussion, David. I am too. And Bert, good to have you. It's a pleasure to be here. Always fun to talk about this little agency called the NLRB. That's right. We are going to unpack the National Labor Relations Board or the NLRB. And we're going to have a little fun today because, Nita, I'm going to ask you to kind of play the host and steer the conversation. And I'm going to jump on the other side and participate as kind of a subject matter expert along with Bert. And we're going to bat around some of these new developments with the NLRB. So, Nita? Take it away. I'm looking forward to this. Well, I'm very excited to be the moderator today because I think both David and Bert have a depth of experience around the National Labor Relations Board, which has probably been, I think we can all agree, the most aggressive of the Biden administration agencies. And I think one of the things we really wanted to talk about today, which is something that will impact all employers and all employees in the United States, is a recent decision the board made about severance agreements. This is an important decision that all non-union employers need to pay attention to. So, David, let's do a little history first. Can you talk a little bit about where unions have been and how we got to where we are today? Sure, Anita, I'm happy to because unions have had sort of a roller coaster relationship in our society. One of the high watermarks was in the late 70s up into the early 80s when President Reagan was president. And at that time, there was the air traffic controller strike led by the PATCO union, the so called PATCO strike. And as a result of that, President Reagan said, you know what, you're out. He literally fired and replaced those striking air traffic controllers who were striking illegally and directly interfering with the operation of the nation's airlines. But it also set a significant tone for, you know, unions are not part of the solution. Effectively, they're part of the problem. And with that, that kind of set the tone really for the next 40 years until we reach today. You know, David, more than that, or I should say, in addition to that, there were other things going on. Many of us remember, you know, Jimmy Hoffa, where is he buried? The enormous scandals of the central state Teamsters, the affiliation of unions with organized crime. All of those Godfather movies have their effect, too. And then we also have to remember 26 states, more than half the states in the union, have right-to-work laws. So the reputation and odor of unions during the period after the PATCO strike really had an impact. Well, and finally, Bert, I think further compounding the diminution of unions and people's, frankly, paying attention to the National Labor Relations Board was the shift in the economy. We went from that traditional 
you know, in the 60s, we had a lot of heavy manufacturing, a lot of those spaces where unions traditionally have been so strong. And as we move to more of a service economy, and particularly as Silicon Valley took off, which was decidedly non-union, really the whole role of unions and the NLRB specifically as a workplace agency was quite diminished. But that kind of takes us up to where we were, right, Nita? That's absolutely true. So one funny thing about Reagan and the PACO strike is, of course, you know he was president of the Screen Actors Guild Union when he was an actor. But I think let's turn, Bert, from the past to the present. And right now we have the most pro-union president we've had, I don't know, since FDR, maybe. And how has that approach been rolling out with the National Labor Relations Board, Bert? Well, I kind of agree. I think, though, that President Biden would probably have to cede to being the most pro-union president since Harry Truman, who vetoed the Taft-Hartley Act, we recall, in a nationally broadcast uh, veto message. But I think President Reagan also lets us know that presidents matter. And President Biden is clearly trying to influence the nation's understanding of unions and unionism on day one of his term as a practical and a symbolic measure, he fired the Trump-appointed general counsel of the National Labor Relations Board, Peter Robb, and appointed or nominated Jennifer Abruzzo, a lifelong NLRB veteran and a staunch union advocate. And just so everybody knows, the general counsel of the NLRB really sets the tone and sets the agenda. So this was a dramatic effort. And he has been persistent in his support of unions. And although it's probably aimed at a traditional blue collar voters, it's had its impact on a new generation of workers who have new opinions of unions, who aren't familiar with the past that David and I have just been talking about, and I think are influenced by the economic inequality that has you know, visited us in post-pandemic U.S. And that's what I think uh, brings us to today. Well, I think another component that really amplifies the National Labor Relations Board today is the unsuccessful effort by President Biden and his administration to enact the PRO Act or the uh, Protecting Right to Organize, which is AFL-CIO's number one legislative initiative that would have decidedly amended and tilted the labor laws to favor union organizing and unions in elections. That never made it through Congress, even when the Democrats controlled both houses. So as a result, the NLRB, in my view, has effectively, as much as possible, tried to read many of those PROACT type reforms into the existing statute with this very activist agenda uh, that they're starting to pursue. And I think that that's absolutely true. We can talk a little bit about this, or we're going to talk quite a bit, I should say, about this new, very controversial decision the board came down with on severance agreements that will impact all employers, whether you have unions or not. So, Bert, could you start by explaining how an NLRB decision impacts and why it impacts non-union employers? Well, I'll try, but we have to go a little bit backwards. Uh, It all starts with the National Labor Relations Act, which was passed in 1935. Many people think of it as the core of the New Deal. And then in the core of the National Labor Relations Act is Section 7. And Section 7 is intended to protect employees' rights to form unions, and it also protects an employee's right to freely discuss the terms and conditions of employment 
regardless of the presence of a union. This is called concerted protected activity. And as a result, this board decision applies to all covered workers, regardless of union membership. So the next question, who's a covered worker? Well, most employees in the private sector are covered by the NLRA. The big exceptions are public sector, that is to say government workers, agricultural laborers, and in the new economy that David just talked about, it doesn't cover independent contractors and it doesn't cover supervisors, but it does cover all employees who don't fit into those exceptions. So it covers millions and millions and millions of workers. Well, with that as a background, David, let's turn to the actual decision, the McLaren-McComb decision, and what it means. Sure. McLaren-McComb decision was issued in February 21st of this year, so it's very recent. And in that, it arose when a hospital faced a COVID situation and had to furlough or lay off several non-essential, actually 11 non-essential nurses. The 11 employees were given severance agreements. They were given severance pay. And part of those severance agreements included pretty garden variety provisions that I think any of us who draft and counsel uh, employers typically would include. It included, for example, a basic uh, waiver and release of all claims. It included broad non-disparagement language. It included, that is, that you wouldn't say adverse things about the employer and so forth. It included confidentiality and non-disclosure provisions, that is, that you wouldn't discuss the terms of the agreement, except with your spouse, your financial advisor, your counsel. Again, these are fairly typical provisions. That was what occurred. The employees all accepted the agreement. And I might add, there was no consultation or negotiations or bargaining with the union, either about the severance decision or the terms of this agreement. This was in 2020, there were COVID restrictions on what the hospitals could do. And these were viewed as non-essential employees and they just didn't have work for them because of the COVID restrictions. So Bert, can you go on and talk a little bit about what the board said in this decision that we need to take into account? The board used I think overbroad and ambiguous language, and it's caused some consternation, but the board determined that the hospital violated section seven of the National Labor Relations Act by including overly broad confidentiality and non-disparagement provisions, which in their view, chilled the rights of the employees to communicate with each other and with other workers and with non-employees about their employment and about their employer. So simply by offering such an agreement, the board said, whether somebody signed it or not, simply by offering an agreement that has those overly broad provisions, that constituted an unfair labor practice and it was a violation of the National Labor Relations Act. Now, as David said, that sounds extraordinarily broad, but do remember that this board can only rule about rights protected by the National Labor Relations Act. So employers are still free to seek releases for allegations under other laws, employment discrimination, age discrimination, Title VII, ADA. And remember, Nita, that this only covers employees. It does not cover independent contractors or supervisors. 
And this isn't all, guys. A few days later, because this decision was very controversial and raised all these questions, as Bert mentioned already, David, the NLRB's general counsel issued a memorandum. In fact, we moved the date of this podcast because we wanted to make sure we understood what general counsel Abruzzo meant and what, in fact, does that general counsel advice memo, what additional indications does it give us about what to do as employers? Yes, this general counsel memo is very important. So the memo is issued on March 22nd and directly responds to a number of questions that people had about the original decision that had been issued a couple of weeks before. In this, now the general counsel renders advice and also indicates in terms of her role and duties as the prosecutor, if you will, the types of cases that she would like to see charged and brought forward before the board. So in this advice memo, the general counsel takes a rather, I would say, expansive and bluntly stunning view on what this rather, you know, this decision that we were kind of wondering, are we overreading the decision? Does she really intend for the scope to be that broad? The takeaway is, Oh, yes, she did, and it's even more so. So in General Counsel Abruzzo's interpretive or advice memorandum, what she says is that generally speaking, any non-compete, non-solicitation, non-poaching, anything that has broad liability and requirements not to sue or cooperate can per se be illegal. It is the agreement itself, the rendering of the agreement, that is illegal when it contains those provisions. But she goes further and addresses, to Bert's point, you know, well, supervisors aren't directly affected because they're not an employee. However, a supervisor who either proffers such an agreement or who objects to proffering the agreement, she says that that supervisor, in fact, has coverage under the decision and would be protected. That's a rather stunning expansion of the act outside of the scope of employees. And she really says it really doesn't matter what was said, what the reasons were. She just looks at the strictly at the document. Is the decision retroactive? One of the key questions. And the answer is, yes, it is. It's going to be retroactive. So employers that have previously, before they were on notice of this decision in February, proffered, as thousands of employers have done in the country, proffered release agreements that contain the type of provisions we're discussing here, Those agreements, unless the employers now go back and either amend or state they will not enforce those provisions, those constitute violations. Well, then she says, well, geez, you know, what about the statute of limitations? There's supposed to be a six-month statute of limitations. Her answer, again, being very expansive and activist, is effectively, this is a continuing violation. So anytime the agreement comes forward, so effectively obliterating the six-month statute of limitations. One of the other thoughts that we had was, maybe you could do a carve-out provision, you know, that there could be carve-outs and say, well, you generally can't disclose, but of course you can protect your rights under the uh, National Labor Relations Act. Those aren't favored either. So she basically, I think, and Bert, I don't know what your reading is, but my reading is, she has pretty much said these types of provisions are per se out not only going forward, but if you had them in the past, they are illegal vis-a-vis the National Labor Relations Act. Uh, David, I think you hit the nail on the head. It is a breathtaking decision, and I think it will have a chilling effect on employers generally. And one of the main reasons is 
for all of the detail that you've just described, the advice memo was not terribly clear on practical advice. And from my point of view, employers still really don't know what is legal under this McLaren-McComb decision. You know, what language is sufficiently precise to pass NLRB muster? Okay, it's pretty clear that you can bar defamation. It's pretty clear you can protect recognized trade secrets. But what else? What about your business plans? What about your customer lists? What about transcripts of investigations that you've undertaken internally, that you have to take undertake internally? We have no idea whether those are permitted. There's a reference, as you said, to severability. That is to say, you know, if there are clauses here that we can sever because the board thinks they're illicit, but we don't know the reach of that. For example, can we have a waiver provision? You know, can we simply say nothing herein is intended to uh, limit the rights under Section 7? There's an implication from Abruzzo that even such a waiver provision will not suffice unless it is tied to specific rights and privileges granted to the employee. And finally, for me, we still don't know if the courts will accept this retroactivity. You know, the Constitution bars Congress from making retroactive laws. There are some few retroactive rulings in the administrative law realm, but they have all been tied to specific statutory right to do so. Whether the courts will find that the NLRA delegates a right to issue a retroactive ruling is frankly very much to be seen. David, you know, listening to this, and we all know that these decisions within the board take forever. They have to arise. They have to be adjudicated by the administrative law judge and get up to the board. They can take five, 10 years. What do you think employers ought to do today? Well, unfortunately, General Counsel Abruzzo, as Bert points out, really hasn't created any safe harbors or provided frankly, any specific effective advice on how you go forward. There's a long list of what may be prohibited, but not really a list of what will be accepted or found to be licit. That said, I think that certainly with respect to these garden variety clauses that are often included in severance agreement, I'll call it for rank and file, non-supervisory employees, probably should be cutting those back going forward. This is particularly true as companies are looking at significant layoffs as the economy continues to sputter in certain sectors. So I would be careful of that. I don't think that most clients are going back and retroactively worrying about this. And I don't think that most clients are terribly worried about what happens with respect to supervisors. But there's at least that possibility. And it is a risk assumption question at this point, whether you want to risk being the test case. It's clear that General Counsel Abruzzo has the appetite to find those test cases and will take them on. You know, some employers have had these provisions for decades. They're comfortable with them. And they, you know, the typical response we hear from clients is, even if they're not enforceable, I like having them there because then people don't badmouth the company. I think that core assumption for rank and file employees, we need to rethink and recalibrate at a minimum. That's the minimum, I think, going forward. Well, with that, we're getting towards the end of our time here. So, Bert, would you like to start our takeaways for us? <laughs> I'd like to, boy, a lot to cover. It's kind of a, a pricking up my thumbs, but I have a feeling that the board is feeling its oats and that this may very well be the high watermark for the pro-labor activities of the Biden administration. I kind of have this, you know, we can never forget Newton's third law. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And I think there will be a reaction to this 
that may be even greater than what Abruzzo is putting forward. Well, and I think, you know, just for my two cents, we were just talking about this is going to be very chilling for some, at least some employers, because to find out what this decision really means and to get any kind of guidance around it from the courts is going to take a very long time. But I wouldn't be surprised to see some of the trade associations take this to the courts to see if they can get a declaratory ruling because it's so broad under some of the more recent decisions we've seen in the Court of Appeals. And David, you get the last word. Thanks, Nita. Well, I think the only thing I would add is most of our listeners, you probably don't have unions representing your workforce. You're probably not worried day to day about union organizing still. Unions only constitute about 6% of the private sector. All the union growth, frankly, is primarily in public sector. So with that being said, we need to pay attention to the National Labor Relations Board. This decision that we've just talked about impacting severance agreements, upcoming decisions and developments that will impact the use of independent contractors and the classification of workers are critically important. And these are, as Bert explained at the top of this, will impact effectively all private sector employers I might say, except for rail and airline, but all the rest of the employers effectively, you're under these decisions. So pay attention to the NLRB and some of these developments, even if you're not represented by unions in your workforce or dealing with union organizing. So David, I'm going to let you wrap this up. What did it feel like to be on the hot seat today? Hey, I liked it. I know this is usually where you are. How'd you like uh, being the moderator, the air traffic controller? It's fun. It's much more fun in some ways. (laughs) I think this chair was fun, too. Well, listen, Nita, thanks. You did a super job. And Bert, uh, you did, too. And and thank you both for another terrific, terrific podcast. Uh, Those out there, DC Insider, what employers need to know. If you don't subscribe already, please do. Examples of what we're talking about, we're going to continue because the agencies and what's going on in Washington, it's really starting to roll. And we're going to keep right on top of it for you. So thanks for joining. And Nita and Bert, thanks for another great podcast. Talk to everyone soon. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. We look forward to the next update. For those that would like to connect with any of the lawyers from Fortney Scott, please reach out to them directly by visiting fortneyscott.com. On the website, you can also listen to previous podcast episodes, as well as pick up your copy of the DC Insider Report and sign up for future updates. Thanks so much for listening.